0: Welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caporella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, June 16th through Saturday, the 18th, feature Ricardo Muti and the orchestra joined by Sophie Mutter. The program includes Beethoven's violin concerto and after intermission, Johannes Brahms' Symphony No. 1. And here are program notes by Philip Husher on the Beethoven Violin Concerto, a work lasting about 42 minutes. Ideas for the Violin Concerto and the celebrated Fifth Symphony appear side by side in sketchbooks dating from 1806, reminding us that Beethoven often worked on a number of important pieces simultaneously, and that the lyrical and heroic sides of his musical nature were never completely separate. By 1806, the powerful C minor symphony had already been in the works for two years, but it wouldn't reach its final form until 1808. The serene and noble violin concerto, on the other hand, was written quickly in 1806 and finished just in time for its premiere that December. The concerto was written for Franz Clement, a gifted young violinist who was exploited at an early age by an enterprising father. Like Beethoven, he played in public for the first time when he was seven years old. But where the young Beethoven's early years were spent in Bonn, Clement was dragged throughout Europe's music centers by his father, who behaved as if he had a young Mozart in his care. In 1789, eight-year-old Franz started an album that in five years would encompass 415 pages of autographs and congratulatory messages gathered from leading figures in Germany, England, Holland, Belgium, and wherever his father took him. In 1791, when Haydn was in Oxford to receive his honorary doctorate, little Clement played at a concert in his honor, and Haydn dutifully signed his name in the boy's book. On a page dated 1794, Vienna, we find the autograph of Ludwig von Beethoven. It was a number of years before Beethoven and Clement met again, but after the violinist was appointed conductor and concertmaster of Vienna's Theater an der Wien in 1802, their paths often crossed. Clement was the concertmaster for the premiere of the Eroica Symphony in April 1805, and it was just a matter of months before Beethoven began his only violin to fulfill a request from Clement. Beethoven had started a violin concerto in the early 1790s when he was living in Bonn, but stopped work halfway through the first movement. Apparently, the concerto was written in some haste, and if popular legends can be trusted, was barely finished in time for the premiere on December 23, 1806, when it was performed without sufficient rehearsal. That same legend insists that Clement played the work at sight that night, and, as if credibility weren't already strained, that he interpolated a piece of his own between the first and second movements playing with his violin held upside down. Like a number of works that have overcome unsuccessful premieres to find a large and enthusiastic public, Beethoven's Violin Concerto took some time to earn a place in the repertory. It doesn't quickly or easily reveal its special beauty, and a number of early performances were coolly received. Not until the historic London performance of 1844, with the 13-year-old Josef Joachim as soloist and Felix Mendelssohn conducting, did this concerto finally win approval. In the meantime, at the suggestion of pianist-turned-publisher Muzio Clementi, Beethoven arranged the concerto for piano and orchestra to secure a wider audience. The transcription cost him little effort, essentially finding something for the left hand to do while the right hand added minimal ornamentation to the original violin part, but it also found little success in this form, sounding makeshift and proving that what's sublime on the violin may well seem commonplace on the keyboard. That this concerto was written especially for Clement is apparent not only from the dedication, with its pun on clemency toward the poor composer, but from its graceful, delicate, and tender tone, all words used to describe Clement's elegant playing. Perhaps inspired by his soloist's musical nature, Beethoven finds an inner repose and an expansive, noble tone that's a remarkable contrast to the grand statements of the Eroica and Fifth Symphonies, until one remembers that these same years also produced the calm and gracious Fourth Symphony and the gentle G Major Piano Concerto. Donald Tovey was the first to point out that almost all of Beethoven's flashes of genius in this concerto are mysteriously quiet the opening is a case in point four soft strokes on the timpani answered by gentle chords in the winds it may well have seemed like madness to start a piece with unaccompanied drum beats in 1806 there's no precedent for such a thing but the soft dynamic measured tempo and calm wind music preclude our hearing it as the least bit revolutionary even in 1806 it drew no particular criticism What's considerably more troublesome, and also marked piano, is the entrance of the first violins, only eight bars later, imitating the drumbeats on D sharp, probably the last note one would think of placing so prominently at this point in a D major concerto. Telvi further emphasizes that this surprising D-sharp was written as E-flat in the first sketches, suggesting Beethoven's own ambivalence about its function, and since it's not harmonized and thus explained till later in the movement, it nags at us for some time. The most important moment in any concerto is the entrance of the soloist, which is handled differently and with great imagination in each of Beethoven's mature concertos. The novelty of the 4th piano concerto, written the same year as this one for violin, is the unprecedented appearance of the unaccompanied soloist in the very first measure. Here, Beethoven takes the opposite approach, delaying the soloist's first notes as long as possible, and even then, making the violin climb up almost unnoticed above the full orchestra before it begins to attract attention. From here, the solo plays tirelessly virtuosic music until the very last measures of the movement, even joining in after the cadenza, often singing at the very top of its range. There are many subtle touches here, like the absence of the drum beat when the solo violin plays the second theme, even though it had seemed an integral part of that music when the orchestra played it the first time. The Larghetto is, almost uniquely in Beethoven's output, music without action conceived as a set of variations on a theme that goes nowhere, has no inherent contrast of material, and doesn't imply any change of key. The result is a romance, as Beethoven called it, of breathtaking stillness and restricted dynamic range, which rises once in the middle and again at the very last bars over a multitude of piano and double piano markings. There's fresh detail and invention at every turn and, surprisingly, a growing sense of energy. The violin even slips in an entirely new theme after the third variation and then goes on to the fourth as if nothing has happened. Beethoven stays steadfastly in G major until the very end when the simple move to the dominant to introduce the finale sounds altogether extraordinary. Since this kind of contemplative music doesn't end easily, the violin takes the situation in hand and moves directly into the pastoral theme of the Rondo finale. This simple, genial tune is so distinctive that Beethoven sees no reason to alter even one note whenever it comes back, thus saving himself the trouble of writing it out each time, a useful shortcut when writing on deadline. The finale's progress is straightforward with few surprises, except perhaps for two pizzicato notes from the soloist, the only ones in the whole concerto. As in the first movement, Beethoven makes something captivating of the soloist's trilling at the end of the cadenza, here dropping down into A-flat, the key most removed from D major, and then swinging back in a flash for the final bars. Program notes by Philip Usher on Beethoven's Violin Concerto in D major. And now on to Johannes Brahms' Symphony No. 1, a work lasting about 52 minutes. Beethoven died six years before Brahms was born, but his presence was felt by almost every composer who came after him. Even Brahms, a master of piano music and songs from an early age, put off writing symphonies and string quartets, two Beethoven forms par excellence, offering only the pathetic but honest excuse, you can't have any idea what it's like always to hear such a giant marching behind you. Eventually, Brahms turned and faced the giant, but it took him nearly 20 years to do so, and only the magnificence of his own first symphony gave him the courage to leave the ghost of Beethoven behind him for good. Few great works of music have taken so long to get from sketch to finished product. Obviously Brahms had his reasons for sitting on his first symphony, but eventually his friends and colleagues began to wonder if he, like Schubert before him, might leave an unfinished symphony in the attic. In fact, in 1870, Brahms said he would never complete the piece. His publisher, Fritz Schimrock, finally wrote, "'Aren't you doing anything more? Am I not to have a symphony from you in 73, either?' But there was no symphony in 1873, just as there had been no symphony any year since 1854 when Brahms first set out to write one. That earliest effort in the key of D minor, the key of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, incidentally, neatly sidestepped the issue to become Brahms' first piano concerto, even though the idea of symphony is written all over it. Brahms also avoided the challenge with the two serenades that gave him needed and valuable experience writing for the orchestra without directly taking on Beethoven. There was a further testing of the waters in the substantial orchestral accompaniment to a German requiem and other important choral works. And finally, a dress rehearsal of sorts, the grand variations on a theme of Haydn from 1873, though this too, for all its mastery of instrumentation and intellectual rigor, was not a symphony but Brahms did have a symphony in the works. As early as 1862, he sent a completed first movement to Clara Schumann, Imagine my surprise, she wrote to Josef Joachim, who would one day play the violin concerto Brahms wrote for him in a single summer. Clara's surprise eventually turned to dismay when Brahms continued to drag things out, sending her the horn call from the finale as a birthday card some six years later, and finally sitting her down to listen as he played the whole symphony at the piano another eight years after that. Although Brahms certainly took his time, he proved to an impatient musical public that there was still music being written that was worth the wait. Unlike his contemporary, Anton Bruckner, who made a career out of having second thoughts, Brahms was the best judge of his own work. When a piece didn't please him, he put it aside or reworked it, or in the case of his Fifth Symphony, he destroyed it, but he wouldn't release it. When Brahms sent his completed first movement to Clara Schumann in 1862, it didn't begin with the fierce and arresting introduction we know, but took off like a rocket from the headlong Allegro. Clara confessed to Joachim that the beginning seemed bold and rather harsh, but I have become used to it. Brahms, however, evidently didn't because when he played the entire symphony for Clara more than a dozen years later, it began with the powerful measured drumbeat and chromatic unfolding that now leads straight into the Allegro. Even though it was written after the fact, or perhaps because of that, Brahms's introduction serves as a preview of what follows. The opening violin line rising by half steps, for example, and the falling thirds in the winds will both be whipped into meaningful shape elsewhere. The Allegro is conceived on the largest scale. The final turn into the recapitulation in particular is stretched to incredible lengths, and then, with the destination clearly in sight, resolution is further delayed by a daring descent into a remote key. For a moment it appears that Brahms has thrown caution to the wind, but this sudden whim, too, is part of his plan, all calculated with the skill of a master craftsman. From the beginning, Hermann Levy, a perceptive German conductor, thought the two inner movements more suited to a serenade or a suite. But brevity and conciseness aren't at odds with the symphonic scale, although the grandeur of Brahms's first movement might lead one to expect something equally imposing to follow. Instead, Brahms's slow movement in the surprising key of E major is intimate and modest, with lovely woodwind solos and a magnificent one for the violin at the end. The third movement is no scherzo but an intermezzo, as warm and ingratiating as Brahms's piano pieces, which actually bear the name. With the finale, we come again to Beethoven, partly because any symphony that begins in C minor and then forges triumphantly into C major at the end, must face comparison with Beethoven's fifth, and partly because Brahms' big allegro melody suggests nothing more than the great song of Beethoven's Ode to Joy. When the likeness was pointed out, Brahms simply said, Any ass can see that. More to the point, Donald Tovey noted that Brahms's theme is regularly compared with Beethoven's only because it is the solitary one among hundreds of the same type that is great enough to suggest the resemblance. There are other echoes of Beethoven, too. Certainly, the finale's extensive introduction, clouded with mystery and flaring up with occasional turbulence, takes a cue from Beethoven's Ninth. But then, so do countless works written in the 19th century that don't profit from the comparison. There's also much that is pure Brahms, like the unforgettable horn call that parts the clouds and admits the bright sunlight of the C Major Allegro theme, or the brilliant and hair-raising Coda, which nearly beats Beethoven at his own game. The ending, in fact, is as exalted and triumphant as any in music, and it's clear that the triumph is Brahms's alone. Program notes by Philip Husher on Johannes Brahms' Symphony No. 1. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.